I became friends with a guy in my philosophy class at uni. He was unlike us other teenagers in that his parents had recently died and therefore he had adopted a disconcerting self-sufficiency that was further augmented by virtue of his being extremely bright. Ducks of his posh private boys' school, he was excelling in philosophy and goodness knows what else, while the rest of us wrestled with intermediate logic and philosophy of mind. We would hang out often, for talk came easily to us. We also did indoor rock climbing together. I must have really liked him because it didn't come naturally to me. Climbing required patience, balance and repetition, not the speed and unidirection I was used to in my other sports. We took turns belaying. I stood below and watched him ascend. He had no fear of falling. Grasping a bright orange foothold and hoisting himself up, flattening his torso to the wall, sometimes he would slip or he'd miss the protrusion entirely and would drop suddenly away. Instead of clinging to the rope, eyes closed as I would have done, begging to be inched down to safety, he'd remain swinging up there like a deus ex machina in a Greek play, examining the upwards path and assessing where he'd erred. Then he'd go again and again until he reached the top. It was his poise, no, his pause, that was so enthralling. He would pause just long enough for his immediate past, those previous few minutes, to rush towards and into him so that he might learn from his own wrong-footedness. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi there, I'm Emma Harvey from Good Reading Magazine and you just listened to Dr Kate Rosmanith reading a passage from her new hybrid memoir, Small Wrongs how we really say sorry in love, life and law. In Australia, judges are legally obliged to take a person's apparent remorse into account when formulating their sentence, and yet how remorse is measured remains unclear. Small Wrongs investigates legal, cultural and religious understandings of remorse and how they play out in both courtrooms and our personal lives. Now, before we begin this podcast, Kate, for the sake of transparency, I think we should acknowledge to our audience that you are in fact a former tutor of mine. Yes, I sure am. <laughs> you, were, you were the convener of nonfiction at Macquarie Uni and you were a very good teacher and I was something of a mediocre student, sometimes not doing my readings. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to assure you that I've definitely done all of my readings this time. Specifically, I've just finished reading your hybrid memoir, Small Wrongs, and it is fantastic. So congratulations and welcome. Thank you, Emma. It's so lovely to be here talking to you and you were not a mediocre student. I, was, I loved having you in my classes. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Uh, Well, let's start at the beginning, because your book opens with a particularly compelling account of a sentencing hearing for a murder trial. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so it was was the first court case I ever sat on, and it was a woman who'd been found guilty of murder. So she'd deliberately run over a young man with her car. It was a, a terrible case. It was it happened in on Sydney's North Shore and she'd she was a woman in her late thirties, I think. She got into a sort of a trivial argument with a young man and his um, brother and some friends um, outside a seven eleven 
one evening, the middle of the night, and this young man sort of threw some cheese balls at her car and um, she stalked him with her car and ran him over um, and sort of used the car as a weapon and, and killed him, ran him over. He f- ran down a set of steps and he was trapped underneath and he died. And she pleaded not guilty to murder but pleaded guilty to manslaughter. However, she was tried for murder, found guilty of murder. And um, and so I'd followed the trial in the news. I hadn't actually gone to the trial. Trials are quite rare in Australia and I'd sort of even early on in that, um, in in my research, I'd sort of worked out that in many ways they're not really what the justice system is about. Mostly people plead guilty. Um, Mostly it's about sentencing, you know. Um, And uh, so I turned up to this sentencing hearing and sat in on, um, you know, this this sentencing hearing where, you know, the judge heard from um, the the prosecutor and the defence lawyer sort of... uh, evidence that would determine the nature and the length of the sentence. So, you know, obviously the woman would be sentenced for murder. That was a given, but exactly how many years she would serve and what her non-parole period would be, that was um, for the judge to decide. So there are all these aggravating and mitigating factors. And of course, I sat there and I looked at this woman who was, you know, weeping in the dock and tugging the edges of her suit jacket as if her insides were going to spill out. And it was... um, and, you know, I sat there wondering what she was feeling and then I wondered whether the judge was wondering what she was feeling and whether, you know, her lawyer was arguing she was remorseful and it sort of had to, then fell to the judge to decide whether or not she truly was. So that pulling of the suit jacket, is it's particularly interesting because you come back to it later on and you are speaking to, I can't remember who it was that you're speaking to, but they basically say to you, Kate, the suit jacket was too small. It was too tight you're reading into it, there wasn't this meaningful display of remorse. She was uncomfy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, there, yeah, I spoke to a friend of mine who's a former defence lawyer and who knew right. quite a bit about that case. And when I, you know, was recounting to her this um, scene I'd seen in the court of this, um, you know, distraught person in the dock who kept twisting and being so kind of, I don't know, in, I don't know, this kind of enactment of... Um, of suffering or something. And the, and the, um, yeah, my friend said, Kate, you know, when this woman was on remand, she'd come off drugs because she'd been, she'd had a, a sort of drug and alcohol problem, I think, um, come off drugs and had gained 10 kilos. And, you know, that suit you say she was wearing, um, she was pulling at it because it didn't bloody fit her. <laughs> and so, and of course I, I'd asked the judge about this, not about the suit, but I had asked about the woman's twisted figure in court and whether, so I could, cause I did have this, this interview with the judge and just said, how did you, how did you tell she was remorseful? Cause in the set, after the sentencing hearing two weeks later, there was the actual sentencing. And in, during that period, the judge, um, you know, in his judgment said that he found the w- woman remorseful and I wanted to know where, how he'd drawn that conclusion. So I went and interviewed him and I, I did ask about the woman's figure in court and whether demeanour meant anything. And he was absolutely incensed by the thought that, um, that demeanour meant something and that, you know, how could you tell what anyone's thinking and feeling and that, you know, he couldn't, some people are very good actors. He said, some people cry. What did, what does that mean? You can't tell anything. And so he said that the woman's figure in court was of no import to him when it came to determining her remorse. Did you believe that? Because surely it's difficult 
to watch someone there if they're looking so distressed. Yeah. Look, I interviewed um, a lot of judges for this, for the for the research and then and, and some of that, all, all those interviews with judges kind of filter through the book really. But, uh, and I did ask about this question of demeanour. Um, demeanour assessment is always this really problematic thing in the, in the um, criminal courts. And on the face of it, the judges I spoke with would say, no, no, we don't, demeanour is not important. You can't tell what someone's feeling by some kind of outward demonstra- outward sort of physical demonstration or something. So that kind of naive body language sort of reading or something. Um, but then as you would, as I was interviewing them further, you would then hear judges talk about having visual clues from people or that there were signs or for some judges they would say, you know, when a person is truly sorry, there's this kind of, you know, when the remorse is very genuine, they would say sometimes they could feel it from across the courtroom and and as if there's sort of this this remorse just bursts out and the judge is actually hit with that person's remorse. So it moves beyond even a semiotic reading into this kind of realm of affect or something. Yeah, and that, I mean, I guess the follow-up question to saying that you can't take into account demeanour is then how are you quantifying their remorse if it is a factor that you have to take in? And I guess that was one of the fundamental questions of the book for you. Yes. Yeah, so I, I would ask, I asked about evidence. So so judges, um, they require evidence of, of remorse. Um, and so what, what counts as evidence? So I, I asked um, defence lawyers this and I asked judges as well. And, you know, evidence might, um, so for instance, there might be an early guilty plea might be counted as evidence of remorse. So if there's um, no, um, police have no leads and someone walks into a police station and confesses to a crime, it's a cold case or something, you might think, wow, that might in fact, be evidence of remorse because the police would have had no chance of, um, you know, making a case without this person's confession. Um, or it could be um, in cases of fraud, sometimes there's repayment. So sometimes there might be some kind of financial reparation. Um, there might be letters to the victim or letters to the court expressing remorse or something in the letter. There might be psychology reports. So sometimes an offender might have a meeting with a psychologist who then writes a report for the court saying, I declare that this person was remorseful. Um, those reports tend not to have a lot of weight in the courts. And I did speak to a forensic psychiatrist who was really enraged by such reports. He said to me, remorse is in the eye of the beholder and any um, psychiatrist or psychologist kind of making claims about someone's remorse is actually, um, I don't know, it, it's, it's working beyond their brief because really it's not a psychiatric or a psychological condition. It's a, um, a question, it's a moral question that really only judges can um, decide upon. So it was just so interesting. <laughs> yeah, and it's really, like, I suppose you ask, are they feeling distressed for themselves and what might happen to them or are they feeling distressed for the victim like it's very difficult I'm sure to tell what is regret and guilt and what is just feeling a bit sad about what they've gotten themselves into yeah uh, yeah totally and so you would and and this is obviously I mean judges have got really difficult job because they've got to assess crimes in relation to the law and then they've got to sit opposite people and decide who they are and what to do with them and deciding who they are is actually part of their job. So weirdly enough, you know, in life we can never actually truly know what another person is thinking and feeling and yet that seems to be part of what a judge's job requires. I mean, certainly when it comes to 
remorse assessment, I mean, I would say to judges, are you testing for a feeling? Like, are you, what is remorse? Is it an emotion? They wouldn't necessarily all agree that it was emotion, but they certainly said that it was a feeling or at least it started as a feeling. And then there needed to be some kind of outward manifestation. There had to be some kind of tangible thing that judges could see or mm. notice. I mean, it was anyway. So of course, interiority and exteriority were all these, were, were just one of the many themes that I uh, explored through the book. Mm. You write about cultural understandings of remorse and how these sort of play a role in courtrooms and how that can sort of affect the fairness of the way that some people are tried because different cultures and nationalities have different ways of expressing emotion, including remorse. Um, so can it affect the fairness of the way that someone is tried? Absolutely. So look, research is being done, has even been done in the States, I think, um, looking at, I don't know, the comportment of Latino males, I think, in, in the courtroom and um, how there's this, I don't know, this is kind of, you would lose face if you showed, remorse would be a sign of weakness, you'd lose face. And so there's this kind of braggadocio or something that comes from, um, you know, young Latino men, apparently this is this is some research that's kind of, you know, coming out. And, and I guess this, um, you know, when I spoke to the judges, I did ask them about um, Indigenous Australians. I was like, who, are, of course, are so grossly overrepresented in the prisons. And, you know, w- what happens in, in you know, do, I don't know, do we be, should, are they sort of sensitive to the ways in which it, um, other cultures might present in court? And, I sort of, one of the judges said to me that this kind of cheat sheet had been sent around, um, informing judges that they needed to be really aware of the way in which Indigenous Australians might present themselves in court and that a lot of Indigenous Australians may not, you know, they might not look the judge in the eye and that that's not a sign of guilt. It's just a kind of cultural thing. And so I, I and you know, the judges said, you know, it took a while to work out, oh yes, okay, just because this guy's not looking at me in the eye doesn't mean to say he's shifty. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, you know that, like, yay! Well, great that we're taking some steps here, but far out. We've got such a long way to go. So that was concerning. I mean, I, I also, I'm, I mean, a magistrate said to me, I never know what Chinese men are thinking. <laughs> it's like, okay, Thinking's. yeah, right. And she said, you know, a Chinese man might be standing in front of me, and I have no idea. And I was thinking, right. Oh, she said, I don't know. I don't know how to read them. And I, I thought. Oh my gosh, right. Okay, which also then, of course, you know, you think, okay, but you can read a kind of someone from a white Anglo background. Is that, how does, how does this work here? I just, so that was all really, um, obviously, really problematic. You made an interesting comparison to being a university marker and marking up against a marking criteria, but at the same time having to be kind of intuitive um, because... To an extent, it is measurable, but when you look at it, really, it comes down to you and your instinct. And And you were speaking to, was it Magistrate Hugh Dillon about this? Um, and this was one of the breakthroughs in your research when you asked him at the end of your interview. You said, what else am I not asking that I should be asking here? Mm. And then he came up with a really interesting answer for you. Can you go into that for me? Um, yes, Magistrate Hugh Dillon, he was at the time the Deputy State Coroner of New South Wales 
and had worked as a, manu- a magistrate and a um, I think a prosecutor as well in the courts and things. But he was he was at the time um, a coroner, and I went to him and just I was as I was asking you know all these judges and magistrates and things about remorse, and I was interested, of course, in remorse in in a, in a coronial um, sort of setting as well. I got on with Hugh very well, and I called him Hugh because he said to me, "Call me Hugh," um, and we're now friends. He's he's a fantastic person, and he um yeah at the end of the interview I said um you know, it was a really cheeky question. I said, what am I not asking the judges? What what have I not just asked you that I should have asked you? And that was at the end of this interview. And he said, um, how, he said, I would like to know how judges sentence people. And I said, what do you mean? Don't, don't you all use, you know, intuitive synthesis? Because that's the phrase that gets used in legal, in law literature. And, and I'd, I'd sort of come to understand, sort of had a grasp of what intuitive synthesis was, and I really liked the sound of it because it felt so common sense, sensical mm. or something. And uh, yeah, he said, um, "No, but what does that actually mean?" And I said, "What do you mean? What does it mean? You're doing it. Like, what do you what? You know?" And he said, "No, but what does intuitive synthesis actually mean?" And and what um, he ended up talking about, and what I you know found out about, and then wrote um, a sort of a long essay about it for the monthly magazine was the um, sort of overly complex sentencing legislation that was in New South Wales at the time. I think it's starting to be redressed, I think. But at the time, um, this was in about 2012, that was just so, I don't know, baroque that it, it was almost like a kind of phony science or a fake mathematics or something as judges had to do all these, um, you know, additions and subtractions from a starting number that already was discretionary. So it was like a, it was just weird. Like, you know, for you'd got 20, you know, an offender got 25% off the sentence for this or 12.5% for this and 1%. It was just so, so one judge actually had the word, the, t- the little a sticker intuitive synthesis written on his calculator, um, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So look, that, that was really obviously, fas- you know, a really fascinating thing to have um, stumbled upon during yeah, during the research. Mm. For sure. And even actually in speaking to those judges, I was going to ask because, I mean, we often, when we're hearing about coverage of the Australian courts, we get the commentary of lawyers and of analysts or witnesses, um, but we don't typically hear from the most authoritative person in the room, which is the judge. So how did you manage that? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I feel so grateful to have got the access that I did. Um, part of me wondered whether I it helped that I wasn't a lawyer. Like I sort of taught myself criminal law in 2010, but I don't have a law background. And so I'm really non-threatening. <laughs> but also um, I think that the, the judges, uh, so the judges were in research terms self-selecting, which means that I interviewed the judges that wanted to be interviewed and that wanted to speak, who wanted to speak to me about this question of remorse. And they were judges who were really interested in this and and wanted to reflect on it and wanted to think deeply, I think, about their own practice. Um, and I, yeah, I know I was just so grateful and I just liked all of them so much. You know, they were just such, you know, they were the kinds of judges I'd be happy to go before. I think you want to go before a wise person, don't oh, you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you say that you hadn't, had you even set foot in a courtroom prior to beginning all of this research? No. No. And that, I mean, I think as a reader, I found that really helpful because we were sort of on equal footing then, entering entering into the story and then following you along from this curious kind of spectator to this determined investigator trying to get to the heart of everything. So that was really cool. Um, 
in addition to the fact that the book is about law and it's obviously got a lot of valuable insights into the Australian legal system, it's also a hybrid and it's a hybrid of memoir as well. So you obviously you reflect on the role that remorse plays in your upbringing and in your marriage and in your relationship with your daughter. Um, at what point did you decide that writing about your personal life was also going to have a place in this story? It, I can tell you exactly. It was in probably about February 2013. So did you? I don't know whether you expected such a specific response, that but is I can. Such a specific I know response. because I remember it very clearly. At Two p.m. I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, look, what had happened at that time is I'd just come off doing it about two years of fieldwork, so I'd done the two years of research in the courts. So I and during that time, I took loads and loads of notes. Um, uh, obviously, and did lots of interviews, had them transcribe. I had so many field notes. And during that two years, what I'd started to do is I'd formulated in my mind the um, conceptual arc for the book. And I knew that I was going to start with questions around performance and demeanour and outwardness and display, like this whole idea of, and, and I knew that the, the whole story about the woman with the suit jacket and everything would be the perfect, I don't know, a case to hinge that on. Then I knew I wanted to move into a whole section about the soul because remorse in the courts is a theological hangover. It was used to sort of keep the social and moral order. When we executed people, people would, you know, stand at the gallows that express remorse, we would all be satisfied that their soul had gone to heaven or, or that it would be going to heaven, then we would hang them. Um, and it was, so it was a way to, yeah, keep some kind of moral order. And um, and so it was there to save people's souls. Remorse in the courts was there to save people's souls. I knew I wanted a whole kind of big section about the soul and about the way that remorse sits within the kind of Judeo-Christian paradigm. Then I knew I wanted a whole section around the sticky question of to what extent remorse needs to be learnt. So is it just innate? Is it some kind of innate thing we're all supposed to just be born with and just have as a human being? Or is it something that needs to be taught? So I knew I wanted a big blab about that. And then I knew I wanted this big section about the weird way in which it relates to rehabilitation because it doesn't. And so there is no kind of empirical evidence out there that suggests that if someone shows remorse sentencing they've rehabilitated themselves right. and and because you can rehabilitate yourself without actually being remorseful if I punch someone in the head and I break my wrist I think I'm nef never going to do that again that really hurt my arm and I'm just never going to do that again so I've rehabilitated myself but there's no remorse so there's this um anyway so I was I wanted to explore that the kind of weird way that we expect remorse to be yoked to rehabilitation and that it's just not I don't know if you expected such a long answer, Emma, but I'm, I'm giving it to you because it's really, it was, you know, this big turning point. I started to write it in a kind of a investigative sort of way and the writing, it just, it felt cold. Like I, and I thought, this is not, this is not the feeling I'm wanting to create here at all. It was, and so one of the things I'd, you know, realised in all the research is the weird narrative imperative for people in the justice system. So that there is a kind of expectation around questions of remorse and expecting remorse from people that they are rational. There's a particular self that is expected from them, that they are a rational, conscious self 
that can demonstrate self-insight and that can then change their ways. So I was blind, but now I see, or I, I'm now, it, it's sort of um, the modern dream of self-transformation. So I am aware of all the wrongs I have done. I can list them rationally, and now I will make amends and look, everybody, I've now changed and I'm a changed person. And it's all hinging around ideas of transformation. In all of that were quite bizarre ideas about a person's relationship to time and about the way they sit, a person sits in through time and space and their own relationship to their own past, their own relationship to past doings, what they even count as a past behaviour or a past action. So all these weird questions around the relationship between words, deeds and affect were really, I found fascinating. So early on in the book, I I have... I make a distinction between event and background. I say that the courts are about event. So there is a happening, something takes place, an event occurs. There's a beginning, middle and end. There's a cause and effect. There's a moral agent. That's what the whole courts are about because someone gets up. This person did this thing to someone else. This person did something, something happened, right? But mostly we kind of don't live our lives with highlighted events. We live our lives in kind of soup in background, in quotidian, in everyday. And I, you know, we go up, get up, we go to work, we have our relationships, we come home. It's it's a, about repetition and it's the repetition of thousands of tiny repeated experiences. What I wanted to do was animate the background. So I, I've got, in the book, I've got this whole um, personal thread that runs through it where nothing happens. <laughs> which was really hard to write about because normally memoir is event-based. Memoir is generally event-based in that something's happened to someone and they're, you know, grapple with this thing that's happened to them and then they talk about how much they've changed or something after the thing that happened to them. I deliberately tried to animate this background where it's to sort of create the dense specificity of experience and to show that life is not it is very hard to map onto that, this idea of the rational conscious self with the self-insight who then says, oh, I identify this bad behaviour, now I've changed my ways. So I showed just this, I tried to animate the soup. God, that was a mixed metaphor, wasn't it? Animating the soup. That's um, Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and, I, and so through the book I write about you know, a really difficult relationship I um, had with my father um, where, by the way, nothing happened. So it's not like he's got his own backstory about, um, uh, but I, you know, no, nothing terribly terrible happened to me growing up or anything. It was just a really tense relationship with a parent um, and then a really tense period in my marriage where nothing happened. It was just that we were suddenly in a bad place. And then you know, having a kid, which a lot of people do, and, um, you know, mothers often find themselves in this kind of weird state of time during that period. Um, so time, yeah, time, and, and believe it or not, I ended up reading quite a lot about astrophysicists' understandings oh of time, um, ended up becoming this kind of organising principle for the, for the book. Um, so, yeah, that, so that occurred to me in the first half of 2013 and it took years to make that happen like that was just that almost killed me to 
to produce that, to write that. Like it was so technically and creatively difficult to do that. Well, I mean, that uh, that really gives all of the philosophy and, and the legalese and everything like a narrative pull, which I think is really necessary. Um, but also, I mean, in addition to all the, the heavier stuff, there's just really charming anecdotes, for example, between you and your daughter. And one of my favourite is when uh, she's lost her temper at your husband because he won't let her go to the playground. Um, and so she hits him. And then at your stern instruction, she has to walk back over to him and mumble some robotic apology of, um, sorry, I won't do it again. Um, and I think that, yeah, everything is so tightly woven and that everything relates to every other thing. And so that, I mean, it speaks to the nature of performance, the nature of remorse as something that is perhaps learned um, and taught. Um, and so, I mean, did you ever come to a conclusion um, or find an answer to that question of whether remorse can be quantified um, did you ever reach a satisfying conclusion? No. <laughs> I mean, I uh, no, but I, I don't think I, I knew possibly I never would. Mm. Um, but I wanted to investigate the ways in which the courts understood it and experienced it. And I felt um, I got to that. So, you know, I'm an ethnographer. It's about interpreting the ways in which other people interpret what it is they are doing. That that reminds me of, of something that you would have said in a lecture, which was to suspend our opinions and to suspend our judgment until you've done the work. Um, and even then, it's not really about your judgment. It's about your interpretation of other people's interpretation and stuff. And um, that just like stood out to me as something that I definitely remember taking away from our lectures. So even if the book doesn't reach a definitive conclusion, that's obviously not what it's aiming to do. Um, but what do you hope your readers take away from it? I wanted to show how the kind of um, our ideas of moral agency and what count or what we even think remorse is emerges in really unacknowledged ways from our everyday encounters in our lives, like from just the way we are in our family, from the way we've dealt with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner or a you know our parents or in our work colleagues or friends or whatever, just our small wrongs, you know, and our, you know, and our, just our relationships and how hard relationships are hard. And I mean, relationships, friend relationships, all relationships, you know, human relationships involve moral matters. Those kinds of, that questions of moral agency emerge in that space. And yet we, we then um, use those unacknowledged concepts and ideas about remorse and we drag them into the justice system and we use them to judge the people who come through that system. I mean, one of the judges said to me during an interview, he said, oh, I hurt someone very badly once. And I, I just the way he said it and in the context of our conversation, I, I had the sense it was his wife. And I, I thought, oh, you probably had an affair or something. I mean, I didn't say that to him. <laughs> Your Honour. No. Um, but I thought, yeah, you know, this concept of remorse, it doesn't kind of um, suddenly, I don't know, jet in from nowhere like it it's actually and plonked into the courts it it comes from from these kinds of experiences so for judges too like judges um you know they're going to be thinking about their own remorse and the remorse in their own lives or whatever when they're sitting in court um and then making judgments about about people I think so that was look that was one of the really big things I think that I wanted to um yeah I think also 
the the slight. I mean, I spent time with the homicide victim support group, so I also went to the other extreme, you know. And I was like, and and they are just extraordinary people. I don't know how they cope with what's happened to them, um, and so these people who's lost loved ones to um, murder and manslaughter, and 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 they they just and I understand why they just did not want to talk about offender remorse, like they just didn't want to. They didn't want to talk about it. They like, as in, you know, a, a number of them, I think sort of said, look, I don't, I wouldn't want to see remorse in the person who, who killed my mother or killed my son, because if I saw it, I wouldn't believe it. If I did believe it, that would make that person human. And I don't want them to be human. Mm. And, and so this, I think often we carry around the idea that, oh, if someone shows sincere remorse, then the victim is going to feel, it's just going to be good for the victim. The victim will feel there's some kind of restoration or something and it doesn't, it's just not necessarily the case. It's, it's almost an element there of it being for the perpetrator so that they can alleviate themselves in some way and redeem themselves. Going back to, like you said, the really Christian notion of, of redeeming and saving your soul. Exactly. It's mm. really interesting. Um, well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. It has been really good to catch up. Thanks, Emma. Uh, Small Wrongs is available now from Hardy Grant Books. You can purchase it via the Good Reading website or any good bookshop. It is raking in rave reviews. I urge you all to check it out. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks, Emma.